Hello! Welcome to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Chris. Well, this is exciting because today, it's not just you and me. We have on a particularly exciting guest, uh, one of the people who I think I've known longest in the free and open source software and free culture world. So uh, uh, welcome, Bassam. Hello. Bassam was also the first person in the Boston Crafts IRC channel. And that's one right. of the first people we told about this show. Wow. That's right. And and also uh, conversations with Bassam were part of our initial reasoning for doing this show. Yeah. As I said, I've known Bassam for uh, quite a while. I think I started pestering Bassam on IRC about like maybe a decade and a half ago on Freenode. I started sending Bassam private messages asking and having interest in various Blender things and also uh, getting interested in the projects that they were working on. I ended up meeting Yuen Fate, who is Bassam's partner at, at Libre Planet a number of years back. Like, it must have been like, was that like 10 years ago or 15 years ago? How long how long ago was that? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it, it was a while ago. Let me think. It was more than 10 years because I met Bassam and Fate about 10 years ago. I think it was more than 10, but less than 15 years ago. Yeah, I think that's right. I Yeah. I think it was actually at the first Libre Planet, whenever that was, because previously it was like the GNU Hackers Conference or something. Oh. Yeah, and I, I and I met Basam and Fateh. So that Basam's gonna probably find this weird for me to say on the on the air, but I uh I called more so what happened is I met Basam and Fateh, who I was huge fans of both of their work because of all the stuff they've been doing on free culture production and stuff like that. And uh they're like, Oh yeah, do you want to come hang out? We're gonna go crash at uh one of our artist friends' places. And we ended up driving there and watching some interesting movie stuff. And um, I called up Morgan on the phone, I said, I'm hanging out with Basam Kardali. Oh my my god and and sorry Basam, that that probably sounds ridiculous now now basama are just casually friends but uh uh um, I, i've done the same to ton a long time ago so oh, right so ton being ton rusendahl of uh blender fame right yeah yeah, yeah I, I feel like we just spent a lot of time talking about how we know basam but still have not introduced what basam does that's right. Basam, I know you from your work on free culture stuff and Blender stuff, but maybe you want to give your background in terms of what kind of stuff you do? Mm -hmm. So I'm an animator. I'm also a teacher right now. I've been teaching at Hampshire and now at uh, RISD. And um, I started getting into floss and animation, I want to say around... I would say before the turn of the century. Say bonus points for using the phrase turn of the century. Right, right. We can do that. Yeah. Turn of the millennium, technically. Yeah. Ooh, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah, that's so cool. So I had um, sort of like slowly come into contact with free software initially because a professor of mine in college, when I was trying to run, I like I was trying to use a piece of software that was in some labs that ran on Unix. And... This professor said, well, there's this thing called Linux, and maybe if you install that on your computer, you could run this piece of software. And um, the, the short story is that I couldn't, um, <laughs> um, but it was my introduction. I think I got like Slackware on like 20 floppies or something like that, and, and then 
kind of like took me a long time to actually know about free software. I just thought it was this cool technical thing. But the fact that it was kind of free and seemingly written by, you know, by people outside of a corporate kind of commercial setting was kind of interesting. And um, yeah, so sort of slowly, sort of slowly started learning about it. As a Blender, Blender is a free and open source animation package for 3D animation mainly that started out as like an in-house animation program for a animation studio and they released it as uh, sort of free as in beer, you know, like a, a, a no-cost download. So it developed a community before it was free software and when the company at the time that sort of owned it went down after the dot-com uh, bubble burst uh, they uh, the community and the original author of blender who worked at that company ton rosendahl um, did a campaign a very successful crowdfunding campaign the first crowdfunding campaign of the internet i think basically right right i think so i think so and it was so it was, it was very unknown uh, but they set up their you know and it wasn't kickstarter they just like hosted it themselves and raised raised um i think it was a a little bit over a hundred thousand euro to basically i don't know if they had to buy the source code back from the creditors or they had to prove that they could do some organization around it but in any case i think uh yeah i don't want to speak to either because i don't remember and i might be wrong but uh so the community Fat is telling me that it was to pay off the investors, so so they did take the money. Yes, but you know, I think like the Blender Foundation or continue to raise money after that for their running costs, basically. I think se- selling manuals, basically, right? Right, a lot of manuals, t-shirts, a lot of uh, swag, swag type stuff. And um, actually, I had my own. So I I started using Blender before it was open source, um, and mainly it was because. I was using Windows and I wanted to switch back to Linux and I decided before switching instead of doing the thing where you get hooked on a bunch of software that is A closed sourced and B only runs on Windows I would like use only things that ran on Linux at the very least. I actually tried to get mostly free software to do everything but I couldn't do 3D animation with free software at the time so I was using Blender because I thought, well, at least Blender will run on Linux pretty easily. So, and I, you know, and, and I was also at the time not pirating software, you know, not that I have anything against that. So I didn't want to spend a lot of money on a Maya license uh, either because Maya also does run on Linux. So I was using Blender and then I switched to Linux and then that whole thing happened. And it at first it was kind of sad and then it was actually kind of awesome. And uh, I did my own conference, like, excitement thing because I went to SIGGRAPH, which is a graphics conference. And I met Tan, who is the, you know, the, the, the original writer and maintainer of Blender. And um, I called Fatty and said, guess what? I'm hanging out <laughs> with Tan Rosendahl right now. <laughs> <laughs> so... Do you want to uh, explain a little bit why Chris was fanning out over meeting you? What and talk a bit about your open movie background? 
Uh, sure. So at the time, so so one of the things that was kind of interesting is that Blender's hobbyist, like Blender had this big hobbyist community at the time, and they mostly made, used it to make still images. That was the um, the primary thing that people did was make images and post them and and share them and do things like that with it. And um, I was interested in animation. Um, so um, I, you know, used Blender to do animation rather than make still images. In fact, I it took a long time for me to, to even make a, a, a single render in Blender, believe it or not. And um, so around that time, the open sourcing of Blender led to actually like a lot more development. It changed a lot faster than it had prior to that happening and um and uh, tan had uh mentioned that it was like a huge difference from the old style of development because in the pre-open source era it was a company software and so there were artists and programmers in the same room and so if they developed a feature it was getting used instantly right in front of them. And there was a whole feedback cycle that happened because of that. And um, with this new way of developing it, people would contribute code. And um, presumably there was a feature that was working in the program. But there's this whole, there's a kind of a big gap between what, at least in the Blender community, we call developer works, meaning that (laughs) a developer thinks it works, uh, but nobody can actually use it. (laughs) <laughs> for for anything um either because the interface is not suitable or it's buggy or it's just not doing what artists actually want and so tan thought that it was time for like it would be a cool thing to do to make a, a short animation and uh with that achieve multiple goals one of them would be to sort of prove that you could make sort of an elaborate production in blender and the other one was that to make sure that you could to actually use it to drive the development uh, of blender Um, for for that reason a lot of the open movie projects of this this was the first have used like the the very bleeding edge of blender code and the the other thing that that Tan decided was that um, it would be an open movie, um, which, you know, we made up the word, but the idea was that Blender Foundation wasn't in the business of making closed things anymore, and so they should release that movie as uh, sort of free culture work, including and because it was made with free software, you could have access to all the production files and open them on your own computer without having to use any proprietary software or have to pay for it. So there's no barrier to entry. So you had this, you know, mountain of data that comes from uh, an animation project. For instance, Elephant Stream was like a 12 minute movie, but there's like seven gigabytes of Blender files and textures that were used to make that movie. Um, And you can use that to learn or make other things with um, sort of remix as you will. Wait, so so you've you've said you've kind of said it, you've actually said all the pieces of this, but I'd like to point out a, a direct a, in in response to Morgan's question of why I was uh or I don't know what the gender neutral term for ban- fanboying is. That that's why I used fanning out. I was trying to think of what the gender neutral was. Yeah. Uh regardless, when I was fanning out, uh <laughs> which sounds very topological now, <laughs> was because uh Bassam was the director 
of the world's first open movie project uh, called Elephant's Dream. And before it was called Elephant's Dream, it was called Project Orange. Mm. Uh, although I actually was a fan of Bassam from before then, because I hung out on the Blender forums all the time when I was in college, um, oftentimes reading every single thread I could or playing that hack at my library job in college and sometimes not doing a sufficient job of checking in books. And Bassam made what was probably the most advanced animation and blunder at that time, which was called Chicken Chair, which is, I still watch Chicken Chair every now and then. It's still my favorite piece of uh, short character animation. We'll link to it in the show notes. We'll link to it in the show notes. And I think Fate did like the, the robot voice on it too, right? right. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah, she did. But but it, th- is that how you became director of, of Elephant's Dream? Is that uh, your work on, on the Blender forums is what got you known enough for Ton to say, yeah, come out here and, uh, and take yeah. on that role? I mean, I think it might have even been specifically Chicken Chair that, you know, come to think of it, like if I had not made that, I think my life would be very different today. <laughs> um, yeah, um, it was, it was, uh, I had myself a copy of Richard Williams Animator's survival kit and uh, had done some animation and other 3D software before. And actually I had done another thing in Blender before as well. And I, I sat down to make a highly ambitious movie and end up making like this tiny little character test from it, which is Chicken Chair, which is just a, a little animation of a chair that is a robot that walks like a chicken that sort of tries to explore the world and then uh, pulls its own plug out of uh, uh, the wall and then like runs out of power and kind of collapses. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it for is the spoiler. 30 yeah. second. <laughs> Yeah, character for, animation for, for a very short animation. But that was really exciting. The idea of an open movie, nobody had done something like that before. And the idea of both making this, you know, maybe somebody had made a short free culture film before, I don't know. But nobody, as far as I know, had taken something akin to the free and open source software development model and kind of shared the source mm-hmm. of that project in that way uh, yeah. that the, that project did. Yeah, and animation's very compatible with that idea, right? Because if you did like a live action movie, you couldn't really open source your actors <laughs> or, or something like that. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe include all of your B-roll footage and stuff like that, but... Yeah. So so this was a case where we, we could... Um, um, well, we did have actors and we couldn't open, open... Voice actors and we couldn't open source them exactly. But the character models and rigs and you know that that version of our actors those are those are open freely available content along with the rest of the movie so we kind you of had could. assets that you could release yeah that can be manipulated more than just like film footage right exactly yeah so so nowadays i think you consider yourself a free software and free culture activist right is that is was that part of the process that got you interested in being a free software like where when did you end up getting aligned kind of philosophically with those uh projects yeah i think it was a gradual process you know i um maybe it's not really maybe there's this kind of phenomenon right now where there are very few i mean i think there are many people who use free software who aren't free software activists but they maybe don't 
always know or care that they're using free software. They're just using uh, whatever is at hand. But I think um, um, if you kind of get into it, it's it's hard to just sort of be at a remove. Like, well, yeah, I just only use free software, but I'm, you know, not going to talk about it or anything like that. You know, so. Um, well, I w- I was that user for quite a while. <laughs> I only became an activist in the last maybe like seven or eight years, yeah. but I've been using free software for over a decade. Yeah, and maybe activist is a strong word for me. Maybe more of an advocate or a, a supporter. I don't know, something like that. So, how did you transition from working on these open movie projects to your current academic positions? Yeah, well, I was working on another open movie, which I'm actually still working on. It's called uh, Wires for Empathy, and its project name is Tube, because it's set in a train station, uh, an underground train station. And I got involved with Hampshire College through some of the people there in this kind of sort of a graphics incubator model. So Fatih and I and uh, a couple of friends that we had met, a few friends that we had met from Hampshire, a professor and a couple of uh, uh, alums, participated in this program where we worked in a lab that was repurposed there called the uh, Nerdodrome. And um, (laughs) we had access, uh, still have access to Hampshire's um, uh, render farm which is uh, basically a, a computing cluster that is primarily used for like AI research. And um, so we started working there. Um, we had this relationship where we Hampshire students would come and intern on our projects, including Wires for Empathy. And so that went on for a while. And uh, eventually Chris, uh, who was the professor, Chris Perry, took a leave of absence. And so his position opened up and I applied for, you know, well, he, uh, for a visiting position at Hampshire, and I started teaching there. So that was the beginning of me teaching at Hampshire, basically. Yeah. So how does your current teaching career draw back on that free software and free culture background? So, And how does that make the way you teach different from perhaps other mm-hmm. courses on 3D animation? Well, when I first applied at Hampshire, the job was specifically for a computer animation professor. And Chris had taught Maya, which is the um, sort of industry standard 3D animation software today. It's used by most studios, including most of the major ones to some extent. And um, it's what most people use and learn um, in the sort of film and animation industry. And I did not want to teach. I did not want to teach Maya or closed source software at all, but definitely not as the main thing that I taught. So when I interviewed, I I flat out said that I was going to refuse to uh, do that and that I was going to use Blender. So so was it was that particularly difficult to um, convince the administration to let you teach with Blender or not really? Um, um, Hampshire's a fairly iconoclastic liberal arts college with a sort of an experimental teaching philosophy. And so I think they were pretty open to it. One of the other professors who teaches game design was just just checked that people could, you know, export assets into Unity, which is the game engine that he teaches, which is proprietary, but 
does actually work with Blender. I think you can even uh, put Blend files in your Unity projects. Um, so, so when I said, yeah, of course, he was satisfied with that. And um, so I started teaching Blender at Hampshire. And um, I was only teaching computer graphics, computer animation. So that was the only software I really used. And I think it went pretty okay. Um, like Maya is fairly complicated. So it's not like Blender had a massively different learning curve from it. And since Chris had recorded some of his classes, I taught the first animation, you know, the first animation class, uh, Computer Animation 1, entirely in Blender. And for Computer Animation 2, I could mix it with Chris's recordings from Maya. So students who had taken Computer Anim 1 in Maya could mm. follow the kind of animation principle things and then look at Chris's video tutorials and be able to do their assignments in Maya as well. And then after the first year, there were no more Maya students coming through those two classes. So I just taught in Blender after that. That's a really interesting way to kind of do a blended class when you only have one professor teaching one software, but allowing your students to use yeah. both. Blended class. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I was mean, not even an intentional pun. I mean, I actually have never insisted that my students use a specific piece of software. What I usually tell them is I'm going to use this software to teach and you're welcome to use it or anything else you would like so long as you could turn in the assignments, you know. And uh, most people use the same software that I'm teaching, of course. Um, I guess that answers the next question then of what about students who say, but I need to learn Maya for industry standard. Why could I learn Blender? Yeah, um, there's fewer of those for me. So because I, I was teaching at Hampshire now I'm teaching at uh, RISD, uh, Rodan School of Design, and both schools are not, you know, they're more, Hampshire's more of a liberal arts college, RISD is more of an art school, but uh, neither is positioning itself as sort of a, a, a degree mill for people who want to enter the industry, right? So there are, there are schools for that that try to like churn out large numbers of people who can be company workers but neither of those two schools are really targeted towards that and so there's less of that particular question but i mean i do get it sometimes and um, i have various answers to it and it usually varies per student i am curious because you I think that maybe your perspective as an educator might be interesting here because you're often teaching people who um, animation software altogether is fairly new to them. Uh, one of the big complaints that Blender, I think, gets from the free software community at large, especially, mm -hmm. or from people sometimes who are very familiar with a different interface, I feel like are the two main categories of users um, who, who end up making an argument that Blender is really hard to learn and that its interface is uh, very difficult for those types of things, which maybe that are, those arguments are being made less today. But um, but do you think that that has something to do with the category of the people who are generally making those complaints? Or do you think that actually there's more of a willingness if you're a student to come in to embrace new ideas? Or, or what do you think of those kinds of comments? Well, I mean... It, it, it's a blend of those different things. I'm going to start making Blender puns too since you've been doing Excellent. it. Perfect. I think software is a moving target and Blender's culture is pretty dynamic. So there isn't 
you know, like sometimes you'll find a piece of software that doesn't change at all in its main interface for like 20 or 30 years. Blender is not that. So the interface today is almost unrecognizable to the one that I picked up when I first started using the program. And it is true that the older versions were not necessarily harder than other animation software, but didn't follow some of the computing conventions that people have become used to. So, for instance, old Blender defaulted to using the right mouse button to select items and the left mouse button to do actions, whereas most other 3D animation programs followed more like Windows conventions where you left-clicked to select and right-click would bring up a menu. So you had these small differences that were creating some kind of learning curve obstacles alongside, you know, a slightly different arrangement of the interface. Today, I think Blender looks a lot more like other animation software does. And in part, I think it's because other animation software also evolved to look more like Blender. Mm. Like certainly like um, when I started using Blender, it had a very kind of panel-based interface where if you're familiar with a tiling window manager, Blender kind of internally behaves like a tiling window manager. So you have your main program. And then instead of having, you know, whenever you want to do something different, having it pop up a new window that obscures what's underneath it, uh, you kind of tile your workspaces uh, into different areas that you can kind of move around and split and join and switch into different editors. And so none of them kind of overlap on each other. And uh, it looks like every 3D animation software works that way now. But at the time, most of them would pop up a lot of transient windows that you had to do something in and then close and or hide. So there's kind of this dual evolution, I think, where Blender is like adopted first as an option and then as a default to work more like the way other software works. And other software also started to work more like the way Blender works. So it's actually really good from my perspective as a teacher that Blender is like that because it means that there's a difference in how I teach at RISD because uh, I don't just teach computer animation anymore. I teach to a sort of a larger group of animators. And so uh, some of my classes are uh, not computer class computer classes at all. They're traditional animation classes. But because Blender's interface has become a little bit more typical, it's easier for me to recommend it or give a small tutorial to do really specific things in Blender. So they, I can teach Blender as a tool that isn't just like, here's this program that you're going to live in. So you have to kind of learn its quirks. It can, I can now also use it as like, well, here's this program that you can do this like one or two useful things in and then export from. So, so it sounds like you're teaching skills, not software. Yeah, that's always the case, right? Um, or you, we, we try to at least. So we've talked a lot about Blender, but are you using entirely free software or what do you need to go outside of the FOSS world to gain in your classes? So sadly, no, I'm not using Blender exclusively. So for the computer animation class, I'm still just teaching Blender. But for my other animation classes, there's just a host of stuff that Blender doesn't do and that there isn't really a great free software alternative right now. Um, so um, for instance, a lot of the traditional animators 
uh, need a piece of software to do um, to capture frames from cameras and um, you know interface with like a variety of equipment for traditional animation capture and they're mostly using a proprietary package for that so that's just there just isn't something there used to be a pro there are a couple of projects one's called boats animator which is a free software project which i have actually mentioned to my students who are remote and don't have access to the labs and it isn't terrible it's a nice piece of software but it doesn't have as much camera support as the proprietary alternatives i think you can only use webcams with it and most of the classes you want to use um, slrs or nicer mirrorless cameras wasn't open tunes also very advertised for the purpose of 2d animation at one point it is and it's actually pretty good but it doesn't do the capture part so open tunes is great once you have your cells on your computer but it doesn't actually interface with the camera directly as far as i know i mean i could be wrong but i really don't think so yeah i mean one if you're doing digital animation you can use open tunes all the way or you can use open tunes once you have your cells imported onto your computer but most of my students aren't doing much on the computer they're doing it mostly most of their work is traditional and so you know once they have it on the computer in a format that can be exported it's almost done so they don't have much need for open tunes there's also like this other problems like for grading and video editing and compositing even though blender does all those three things and there are other free software that do it there are many video editing projects for instance there's nothing really solid enough to teach to right now blender's okay for editing small things but it's not that great once you want to deal with a lot of different types of footage it's it's way better suited as an editor for stuff that you've rendered in blender uh, than for general material and for compositing it's also not the best compositor around so that's been kind of a, a a slightly missing thing i i was hoping to use natron but it hasn't been stable enough in my tests to sort of like teach in class i think it's a little bit abandoned that's a, a free software compositing program uh, but i think it's unmaintained currently and so it might be suffering a little bit because of that I think compositing is not a word that necessarily everybody knows. Do you, right. do you mind defining that? So basically, it's 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 basically kind of Im image manipulation when you have specifically and mostly when you have you know it, when you're kind of sort of collaging images together from different sources, right? So if you think of like a, a modern movie that has that's a live action film, it might have a lot of elements that are from other places so for instance there might be some kind of like smoke and explosion effects that are like little stock elements with transparency that you can drop onto um, your footage there might be some cg that's either stock or made specifically for that movie in post-production you might want to remove uh, certain things from the scene etc right all of that and then like you know tweak the colors and make sure everything matches etc and of course this is happening on moving images so it has to happen for every frame also things like um, 
you know, taking an actor in front of a green screen and putting them in front of a background. So all of that is part of like uh, compositing software. So it's kind of, uh, if you think of something like um, like uh, Krita or, or a GNU image manipulation program, the way it works in still images, but picture that it could work on uh, movie footage instead, right? And typically, but not always, unlike Krita, for instance, rather than being layer-based, where your different elements are in different layers and they just sort of stack on top of each other with transparency, um, they're node-based. So <clears throat> your various layers are inputs and then you mix them with nodes and you do operations with them with nodes in a node network and you um, um, produce an output at the end of that. Right. And Blender has a, a, a version of a compositor is just not uh, sufficiently advanced, it sounds like, for your, your students' needs. Yeah, I mean, it has two major issues. Um, well, it actually, actually has three major issues. One is that it's not sufficiently unadvanced, and the other two are maybe the sufficiently advanced part. So for especially for the students who are just casual computer users or new computer users at the time, and I have not yet taught a specific compositing class. So the, the concept of a node compositor is actually kind of terrifying to them. And they're much more familiar with sort of a layer-based approach. And so a lot of these students want to use After Effects, which is a proprietary layer-based compositor. There are severe downsides to working with layers. But the upside is it's a low barrier to entry if you've already used something that uses, that uses layers before. And so what I've done for a lot of the compositing, compositing-related issues that come up in my 2D animation class is I'll record a tutorial in Blender and in After Effects. So I do twice the work a little bit, and most of the students end up using After Effects in that class. However, there are students in that class who are enthusiastically using Blender at the same time. So I have at least a, a couple of students in that class who are very much excited to use Blender. So it's not one thing or another, I guess. Basam, could you... I'm, I'm curious. There's So it's one thing, I think, sometimes to use all these free software tools and also to do free culture production when uh, you're running a project or working from the outset with a group of people who are interested in or or have um, an understanding of free software, free culture type things. But I'm, I'm curious how when you've shifted to more stuff of, of teaching, uh, have you had any sort of shift in your thinking or or ha have you seen anything particularly interesting in the way that teaching has kind of given you a different experience, especially with people who might not have had kind of pre-exposure to those types of ideas? Mm -hmm. um, I think I'm a lot more appreciative of lowered barriers to entry in, in terms, you know, I think... Um, Prior to teaching, I didn't really care much about that. If there was something that I needed to do, I could learn how to do it. And it didn't matter to me too much if it was difficult so long as it worked. 
Blender was kind of like that for me. I think the first version that I touched didn't actually have menus. Everything was hotkey driven. So you kind of had to mash around on a keyboard for a while to figure out what the program did. That seemed somewhat acceptable at the time, but it definitely doesn't feel that way when you're teaching to a class and people have to do assignments. And as Morgan said, you're trying to teach not the software, but the actual skills. But if the software is really hard to learn, then you might end up just teaching software. And so I really appreciate, for instance, how easy Blender has gotten in recent iterations. I don't think it deserves the kind of reputation that it might still have in some areas. So there's that. I think I also kind of appreciate that students do need to work after graduating, so they need uh, marketable skills. But um, uh, one thing that's kind of nice is that Blender is no longer just the domain of hobbyists. There are a lot of professionals and studios who use it, so it is um, kind of gaining in that area. Yeah, so we, we've talked quite a bit now about teaching animation using FOSS tools, um, but how about, that's for the free software side, but what about free culture? Has your uh, background in free culture production impacted uh, the way that you teach or the output of your classes? I think I do less of certain things. For instance, I have a, a colleague who maybe I shouldn't name in the past who's um, who basically used to advise students not to post their work online in case somebody would steal it and really taught this like sort of copyright vigilance in their classes. So I, I do actually talk about free software in class and free culture and I talk about copyright. I don't try to like be just an advocate or, you know, but I try to not be a copyright advocate either. Morgan, you've encountered that as well, right? Oh, I definitely have. Yes. <laughs> at, at one point, you know, I remember we had a conversation with you and a colleague and you had mentioned like, you know, in case you publish like the uh, scribble source to your your dissertation or if you do, you know, if you if you wanted to publish some stuff early and like it like i think almost got a fear response from that i absolutely have gotten that fear response from the idea of that because if you publish online then it'll be harder to publish in an academic journal which is not actually necessarily true because there are plenty of scholars now with like blogs that they kind of use to workshop their ideas and then they still go on and publish those ideas in academic journals but for a lot of people in academia more broadly, the idea of releasing your work freely is anxiety-inducing largely because of the academic publishing. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I feel yeah. like also in the visual arts and performing arts and stuff like that, you also have this idea of like, oh, well, if you put an image on the internet, you have to put a watermark over it so that no one will steal it and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And that's not to minimize the fear that people will steal things on the internet because people do absolutely steal things on the internet. But um, I think that it's okay to teach students that you don't have to lock everything down. You can put something up there and release it under a free culture license and then other people can make cool things out of what you're doing and build on it. Maybe just to clarify here, I think 
expanding on that specific use of the word steal here, you mean you probably mean non at non attribute. Yes, non attribute. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's kind of you know, maybe plagiarize is a good word for it. I you know, yeah. I you know, I think um yeah, we use we use steal a little bit too too much, I think, sometimes. Um though maybe stealing is good. I, I have a, a friend who's also a teacher, also an animation teacher, and he had a class called Stealing 3D, which I think I want to steal that class at some point, which basically was all about sort of like a bootleg culture, basically stealing or appropriating corporate imagery and logos and like making making art with it, basically. So so I think, you know, you can you can kind of own the word, too, I guess. Yeah. So so I guess I guess maybe as kind of a follow up to to all of that in terms of free cultural use within um, an academic space, do you think that there's more that we as a community could do to kind of facilitate, I guess, kind of the integration of uh, the needs of visual artists in academia with kind of the free software, free culture world? Like, what do you, what do you see there as like potential potential points to to work on and to improve? Hmm. Um. I have a, a response, Basam. If you want to marinate on that for a minute, yeah, go for it. I think one thing that we should be doing more of is teaching students about the various copyright li- and copyleft licenses in the first place because he, most people don't know I'm in art history which means that I inherently deal with a lot of images and I have not had a single class that talked about what licenses things on pictures on the internet are released under mm-hmm. and and maybe even maybe maybe both a, an understanding of the legal tools and situation available but also kind of the history of the kind of artificial scarcity aspect of it that this is yeah. kind of a cons- in a socially and governmentally constructed design. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and if you're presenting this to students who are creating artwork to put out there, presenting it so that there are options, it's not just put everything under copyright, lock it down, never put it on the internet cuz people will quote unquote steal it. But if you present it as copyright is one option, and then here are a whole slew of Creative Commons licenses, and you can just put things directly into the public domain, and basically presenting these as all options that are available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think that's a, uh, I think that's true. I, I agree with that, and I think that's a, uh, maybe that's a good actual um, kind of rallying cry and a good place to. Uh, start wrapping up so i guess basam it's been really great having you on the show is there are there departing thoughts or ideas that you would like to leave our listeners with or 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 any shout outs to anything in particular i was just thinking about one of the really awesome kind of free culturally things about blender are the splash screens Oh, yeah. I don't know if you're aware of this. And I use them a lot in class because, um, you know, Blender, like many programs, has a little splash screen that pops up before it loads. But could you please define splash screen? 
So uh, when you start the program, especially stuff that's kind of a bigger piece of software on a computer, if it takes uh, a little bit of time to load, there'll be a small, smaller window, typically undecorated, with an image on it. So usually like the program's name and logo and maybe some like a couple of links for getting help or, or something like that, right? Or it'll say like loading this or that or the other. Blender doesn't particularly load slowly, so usually the splash screen and the main window for the program come up around the same time. But the splash screen gives you some things like um, when you first run the program, you can like change your defaults and save them, and it gives you a list of like recently opened files and stuff like that. But it also has this nice graphical image that is a something made in Blender, and so it it's basically there. They're contributed by the community and like every release has a different one. And the um, really cool thing is that one of the splash screen requirements for it to be included in Blender as a splash, I don't know for how long this has been, but this has been happening for quite a few releases now, is that the um, file that rendered the image, the blend file, has to be also included. And so if you go to the, um, if you go to download Blender, there's a link for like demo files. And if you click there, you get a grid with all the splash screens of the different versions of Blender. And there's a nice little download button. And you can download that image and load it and dissect it in class. And they are really amazing learning tools. So uh, it's, 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 <laughs> it's a very nice, fun, free culture thing that Blender has. Um, that not many people know about, I think. Yeah, that sounds pretty amazing. I think that's gotten to a good wrap-up point here. So, yeah. so Basam, it was great having you on the show. Thank you. Um, Same here. Yes, thank you very much. It was great being on the show. And uh, we have a whole etherpad full of ideas that we didn't even get into yet. So uh, uh, if you're open to it, maybe we'll even have you back on a future episode or so. Thank you. Oh, and Fatih says hi, by the way. Oh, hi, hi Fatih. Fate. Uh, hello to both Fate and Dan. And Dan. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. Great. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social on twitter as at foss and crafts or you can email us podcast at fossandcrafts.org we also have a chat room join our community hash foss and crafts on irc.freenode.net if you'd like to support the show you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r that's it for this week until next time stay free and stay crafty Maureen, do you want to transition that into asking about the education stuff?
I mean, you just did, but I'll do it again and we'll edit that out. <laughs> well, I figured as much. 